Have you listened to our All the Books podcast yet? On All the Books, Book Riot resident Velocer Reader, Liberty Hardy, and several rotating co-hosts discuss the week's most exciting and intriguing new book releases from every genre. Stay up to date on the best new books with new episodes every Tuesday and get bonus recommendations for older books every Friday with the All the Backlist drop-in episodes. Never miss the buzz on the best new releases. Listen to All the Books on Spotify or your podcatcher of choice. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Eukera. We're recording on Saturday, June 8th. Hello, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you? Um, I'm a little sleepy as we have discussed. We're recording this at <laughs> 8 a.m. on Saturday morning, but I am excited for all that that could possibly bring to the episode. <laughs> yes. I am excited to hear about your trip to France because you were there last podcast and I haven't gotten to hear anything about how great it was. Yes, I was gone. Liberty did an excellent job filling in for me. Um, so thank you to Liberty. But yeah, I was in Paris with my girlfriend for um, about eight days. We we went to Monet's house in Giverny and it's like she – my girlfriend called it like basically like the first Instagram museum. Because it's it's so beautiful from like every angle. And um, yeah, it's amazing. If you can go, you should. And then the, we went to the Loire Valley, which was my favorite because we sat on a bus for the entire day. So there was not, not a lot of walking. It was good. Um, I'm trying to think of like, I bought a number of books. I bought a couple books in French, but like, they're like children's books. So it's going to be fine. Um, and there, I realized there are bookshops everywhere in Paris. It really makes us look like chumps in America. Like every single place I passed, like I wouldn't even be looking and I'd be like, oh, there's another bookshop. So um, they're doing a great job over there. Nice. Did you read anything great while you were there or were you too busy touristing? Well, it's funny you ask. So we were going to try to go on the Eiffel Tower, but a man was trying to climb it the day that we were there. Not like as part of any official thing. Right. He just got out and started climbing it. So they shut it down. Oh, I heard that on the news. I can't believe that's the day you were there. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Well, it was. It ended up being fun because there are men who sell bottles of wine in the park, and we just bought some of those and <laughs> sat on the. <laughs> we yeah. just sat on the Champ de Mars in front of the Eiffel Tower, and um, for like hours. And then it, you know it gets all pretty at night, which is great. But in front of the tower, I was reading uh the. I think it's called the Eiffel Tower or something. Oh, it's called Eiffel's Tower for young readers, which is a whole thing where, you know, they'll where they take nonfiction books and will adapt them for like middle grade or high mm, school. Mm-hmm. Um, I love it. I'm gonna talk it up later. Um, so I read this book, which was all the info I needed about the Eiffel Tower and Gustave Eiffel and how he built it. And I was reading it in front of the Eiffel Tower just to be extra on the nose. Oh, that sounds so fun. I have one small piece of follow-up from a previous episode. So I think it was last week I talked about um, The Queen by Josh Levin, which is a new nonfiction book about um, the true story behind Ronald Reagan's welfare queen, the lady who kind of inspired that story. And it turns out that uh, Josh Levin is actually an editor on the Slow Burn podcast, which is a podcast I super love. They've done some series on Reagan, and then they did one on Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, um, and they've been super fascinating. But they're going to do a short run on The Queen. Um, It's a four-episode 
episode run. Um, you can get the first one in the Slow Burn feed, and then I think the rest of them are on a different feed, so you can download them. But um, if you're interested in that story and don't think you'll get a chance to read the book, um, you can get a four-episode podcast summary of it, courtesy of Slate's Slow Burn. So um, I'll link to the Slow Burn intro uh, in the show notes. I love slow burn. I've, I've only really listened to the first. Do you mean Nixon instead of Reagan or did they also do a thing on Reagan? Yes. Nixon. Nixon. No, Nixon. You're right. Yeah. All right. So, uh, we are gonna take a minute to thank our first sponsor. Uh, this week's episode is sponsored by the collected schizophrenias by Esme Weijun Wang. Uh, this book is an intimate moving book written with the immediacy and directness of one who still struggles with the effects of mental and chronic illness. The collected schizophrenia is cause right to the core. Schizophrenia is not a single unifying diagnosis. And Esme Weijun Wang writes not just to her fellow members of the collected schizophrenias, but to those who wish to understand it as well. Opening with the journey toward her diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder, Wang discusses the medical community's own disagreement about labels and procedures for diagnosing those with mental illness, and then follows an arc that examines the manifestations of schizophrenia in her life. In essays that range from using fashion to present as high-functioning to the depths of a rare form of psychosis, and from the failures of the higher education system and the dangers of institutionalization to the complexity of compounding factors, such as PTSD and Lyme disease. Wang's analytical eye, honed as a former lab researcher at Stanford, allows her to balance research with personal narrative. An essay collection of undeniable power, the collected schizophrenia dispels misconceptions and provides insight into a condition long misunderstood. Uh, and this is one of my favorite books of the year so far, so I'm super excited that they are sponsoring because it is great. So thank you uh, for sponsoring the episode. All right. And so uh, with that, we are going to shift into our uh, regular weekly first segment, which is new books. Um, and I actually feel like switching the order. So Alice, I'm going to have you go first. I was expecting yes. that. Okay. My, my first new book for this week is called Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power by Pam Grossman. It was out June 4th from Gallery Books. Um, I was extremely excited about this. I've seen a number of books about witches come out that are a little too like leaning into sort of like the new agey aspect or whatever and not really giving me enough, you know, like facts, which is what I want, um, which is why we host a nonfiction podcast. Podcast. So Pam Grossman hosts a uh, another podcast um, about – I think it's called The Witch Wave or something. So she wrote this book, which is part memoir and then part kind of exploration of like how the witch has been perceived culturally and historically, which is, you know, my total jam. And her memoir is really – the memoir parts that she weaves in are really, really good. Um, she says at the beginning – I do know this for sure, though. Show me your witches and I'll show you your feelings about women. And I was like, yeah. And she talks about the Malleus Maleficarum, which was this, you know, like witch hunter manual and how the guy who wrote it was such an extreme misogynist and how this was then like one of the best selling books in Europe, um, which led to a lot of the um, murder of women who they accused of being witches. So she also talks about um, how witches are portrayed in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, the actual original Sabrina the Teenage Witch, um, Harry Potter, The Craft. She has some really awesome things to say about The Craft. And uh, just sort of like the positive aspects of being a witch. I don't know. I really, really am enjoying it. I'm, I'm glad that this now exists as a book in the world. So again, that is Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power by Pam Grossman. Interesting. I know you are a big fan of Sabrina on Netflix. Have they, or The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina? Is that in this book too? Or 
there, um, she brings it up a little bit. I think she was, the book is of course very new. So she was able to incorporate some of it, but I think it was written after season two came out and season two, I find like much more empowering than season one, but mm-hmm. I think she has like, I think she has like a positive, uh, portrayal of it. So that's good. Cool. Oh, that sounds interesting. Awesome. So my first book is called Leaving the Witness, Exiting a Religion and Finding a Life by Amber Scora. And so the author of this book is a third-generation Jehovah's Witness. And so she, as she opens the book, had started or she devoted her life to preaching to people about the impending end of the world, which is what Jehovah's Witnesses are called to do. Um, And so she um, volunteers to go with her husband to preach in China, which at the time was illegal and also extremely dangerous. Um, It's not really clear what happens if the Chinese find out that you're preaching as a Jehovah's Witness there. So while she is there, she starts to kind of immerse herself in the culture. She makes friends with people, um, mostly with the um, intent to try and then um, bring up Jehovah's witness and, and try to convert them or bring them into Bible studies, but it uh, doesn't exactly go as planned. So she already, even though she's kind of doing all the things that a Jehovah's Witness should do, she has had a complicated relationship with the uh, religion and her faith. She was disfellowshipped in her 20s um, because she had a relationship with another witness. Um, a disfellowship is so, sounds so strange. They basically just pretend that you, they, you're not allowed to participate in anything in church life. So if you do go, go to church, you have to sit in the back and sort of nobody acknowledges that you're there. And then you're just disfellowshipped for a period. And then the elders get to decide when you get to come back after they feel like you've repented enough. It's it's really super strange. So while she's in China, she like connects with all these other people and starts to see some holes in her faith and eventually decides to leave. And so when she does that, she just gets rejected by her friends and family. And she is left alone in Shanghai by herself with no resources and no support other than the people she's met there, um, which is right about the point at which I have gotten to read this one. So I'm not quite done yet. But it's sort of this really fascinating coming of age story about a woman in her 30s kind of having a, a, a moment of, of reassessing her life and sort of blowing it up and starting from scratch um, and starting over with a new identity. Um, and so after Shanghai, she goes to New York and then kind of continues on from there. So uh, it's so, so good so far. Um, it's a book that like I had to put aside to start reading some other books to preview for the podcast. And I was really bummed to put it down because it just it's so interesting. She has a really great, honest writing style and she just kind of brings you into this um, experience that like has no nothing really to compare it to. It's so interesting. So that is uh, Leaving the Witness, Exiting a Religion and Finding a Life by Amber Scora. Man, I love like I used to be in like a religion that's not super common mm-hmm. and now I'm going to talk about that life books. Those are great. Me too. They're so good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks for thanks for chatting about that. <laughs> My next book is – I was really excited about it just from the title and um, it's already sort of given me a lot of info I didn't have before. So it is The Truffle Underground, a tale of mystery, mayhem, and manipulation in the shadowy market of the world's most expensive fungus by Ryan Jacobs, uh, out June 4th from Clarkson Potter. That t- subtitle is so good. It's just, uh, I was delighted by that. The cover is like- It's spectacular. Yeah. The cover is like kind of like a detective noir situation um, talking about these truffles. So I'm going to quote from the publisher because it's really good. Beneath the gloss of star chefs and crystal laden tables, the truffle supply chain is touched by theft, secrecy, sabotage, and fraud. Um, essentially what's going on is that these 
it focuses on France, at least in the first, like, I've read like a quarter of the book. Um, so the truffle industry in France is a bunch of farmers who have planted oak trees because that's the only place where truffles can grow, which I didn't know. Um, and these people are coming in. Truffles are extraordinarily expensive, especially white truffles, but also like black truffles. And people are coming in at night and digging up the truffles and stealing them, or in some cases, driving a truck through the door of a warehouse and just stealing, like putting a bunch of truffles in a bag and leaving. Um, This is like hundreds of thousands of dollars that they are taking. So what he does is he talks about the truffle theft, um, how there's been at least one murder as a result of it, and how um, like the how the history of how we started farming truffles, which only went back to like 1818. Um, Prior to that, people even going back to like thousands of years ago didn't. They were like, we maybe magic is how they grow. And um, which is probably what my theory would have been if I'd lived back then. But um, this really observant farmer in um, France, his last name was Talon in like 1818, he discovered that, oh, they seem to grow at the base of oak trees. Maybe if I plant more of these oak trees, there will be more truffles. And indeed, so it came to pass. So um, the reporter is really like tenacious and like into like getting into the story and, you know, like narrates it from his like investigative point of view while giving you this history. Um, oh, and I did learn that truffle oil is basically a big scam and is not even it's like a synthetic flavor or something for the most part. Most of the time you're going to get like truffle huh. oil things. Yeah. And that's why it's so cheap compared to actual truffles. So, I mean, if you like it, go for it. But I'm just I'm just informing the public. So. uh Essentially, you know, he's saying like, what, what is the draw of truffles? Like, why, why are they such a thing? And it's really interesting. So again, that is the truffle underground, a tale of mystery, mayhem, and manipulation in the shadowy market, the world's most expensive fungus. Every time you added like another detail about that book, I just thought, yes, I want to read that. And then you said another thing and I was like, ooh, I want to read that even more. Oh my gosh, that sounds (laughs) so good. I'm so jealous you got to like talk about that one because it sounds awesome. It's really good. All right. My second pick is um, kind of a contemporary political book. Uh, It's called This Land is Our Land, an Immigrant's Manifesto by Suketa Mehta. And this book is, uh, quoting from the publisher, a timely argument for why the United States and the West should or would benefit from accepting more immigrants. Um, And it is fascinating and so interesting so far. So the author uses his experience as an Indian American kid. His family immigrated from India to the United States uh, to New York City. Um, So he uses that experience plus years of reporting and talking to immigrants and people on all different sides of immigration issues to get kind of all anti-immigrant backlash around the world. So a lot of it is centered in the United States, but he also, um, one of the chapters I just finished, he was over in um, Morocco and uh, talking about Syrian refugees, or not Syrian refugees, um, refugees from Africa that are going through Morocco to try to get to Spain and what that kind of whole system is like. And so he argues that we're being destroyed by fear of immigrants, not actually by immigrants coming into our countries, which is actually quite sensible. So it's also a book talking about why global movement of people is so high, like why so many people are moving from place to place and why immigration is such an issue kind of across the world. Looks at how climate change is affecting different countries and also at um, historical impacts of colonialism and global inequality and how that contributes to immigration and movement of people today. Um, It's I guess I feel dumb that I never like connected it before, but he's making a really 
compelling argument about colonialism and how colonialism coming to countries, taking resources, taking people, and then leaving those places worse off than they were before, leaving them with borders that are not sensible, leaving them without resources. Like, of course, people from those countries are going to try to come to the countries that took the stuff and that are rich and have the things that they used to have. Um, and I, I don't know, I just never like, this is my privilege of speaking, I think. I just never put that together before. And I think that's a really interesting and compelling argument. So I'm enjoying that part of it. It's kind of seeing immigration not as like a specific people fleeing from a violent place now, but as kind of a long history that there's there's reasons that this is all happening. So so yeah, he just comes out and talks about how hypocritical it is for wealthy countries to colonize places, take resources, and then be angry when those people want to come to the places that have benefited. So um, I think that's super interesting. And I'm really, it's, it's giving me a different perspective on immigration and movement of people and just a bigger context for it than I think I've had previously. So um, it's very good. And it's, it's very interesting so far. So, and it's very, it's very political. It's, he's very upfront in his political views. And I, I appreciate that. Um, so it's not, it's journalism, but it's, it's activism, it's a manifesto, which makes sense, right? So, uh, the book is called This Land is Our Land, an Immigrant's Manifesto by Sukeda Mehta. Dude, that's like, I'm reading Guns, Germs, and Steel, and it's talking about, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's talking about Francisco Pizarro coming to South America, and then, you know, sort of like the other Spanish explorers slash conquistadors um, coming and murdering like thousands of people and taking all their resources. And I'm just like, yes, all of this makes sense then, like tying in with your book, um, going from like the 1500s until now. And it's like, oh, yeah, we started taking all their stuff like 500 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I wanted to just do a sort of quick hits. Um, we have it's June. A lot of books are coming out. Um, a lot of great nonfiction. So just naming them. So we've got um, The Last Pirate of New York, A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and the Birth of a Gangster Nation by Rich Cohen. So that's real fun. Uh, Blonde Rattlesnake, Burma Adams, Tom White, and the 1933 Crime Spree that Terrorized Los Angeles, which there's just so many good subtitles going on here, Um, (laughs) by Julia Bricklin. And then there's also Mama Sketch, A Cree Coming of Age by Daryl G. McLeod, And this one, um, I just started and I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to probably talk about it later on the podcast, but it's Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom by Catherine Eben. This is uh, basically about how generic drugs are real messed up and have like basically no oversight. So it's a little scary, but uh, an important book. So yeah, those are my, my quick hits for this week. Oh, yeah. So many good subtitles. It's, yeah, awesome. Yeah, I have three other quick hits as well. Um, so the first one is Naturally Tan, a memoir by Tan France, which is a memoir by Queer Eyes Faction Expert, which I think – I feel like that one is going to be good on audiobook if you get to listen to it. I just I just have a feeling. So um, the next one is Formation, a woman's memoir of Stepping Out of Line by Ryan Lee Dusty, which is about a woman who uh, is in the Army. She is uh, raped by a fellow soldier and kind of what comes after that. Um, and the final one is Grace Will Lead Us Home, The Charleston Church Massacre and the Hard Inspiring Journey to Forgiveness by Jennifer Barry Hawes, um, which is a narrative account of the shooting at Mother Emanuel AME Church uh, and what has happened since then, which, again, sounds sad and also good and worth picking up. So, yeah, there's a lot of books coming out right now that sound amazing. And with that, uh, we go to our second sponsor for this episode, which is... Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, publishers of Reckoning, the Epic Battle Against Sexual Abuse and Harassment by Linda Hirschman. Linda Hirschman, acclaimed historian of social movements, delivers the sweeping story of the struggle leading up to Me Too and beyond. 
from the first tales of workplace harassment percolating in the 1970s to the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal when liberal women largely forgave Clinton, giving men a free pass for two decades. And yet, legal, political, and cultural efforts were quietly paving the way for the takedown of abusers and harassers. Reckoning delivers the stirring tale of a movement catching fire as pioneering women in the media exposed the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, women flooded the political landscape, and the walls of male privilege finally began to crack. This is revelatory, essential history. Um, Thank you, Houghton Mifflin and Reckoning for sponsoring. That book sounds awesome. It does. Yeah. And I, one of the talking points, which I think is a really good one, is um, Linda Hirschman is also the author of Sisters-in-Law, How Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg Went to the Supreme Court and Changed the World, which I have not read, but I have heard only good things about that book. So I feel like that's a good endorsement that this one will be excellent as well. All right. So with that, we're going to get into our weekly theme segment. Um, And since it is June, we decided we would bring back a previous June segment and talk about books for Pride Month Um, because why not? It's awesome. Um, And so, yeah, I'm excited about this one because we've done it before. So we've got to pull some new titles and there's there's always good, new, interesting ones to talk about. So um, the first book I have for this segment is one that we have talked about on the podcast this year, um, but that I finally actually got around to reading, uh, which is Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States by Samantha Allen. Um, and this is a book about the LGBT activists and movements and systems and support that are happening in red states in the country. So kind of arguing that... Um, the fight for LGBT equality is not necessarily happening on the coasts, but it's really happening in the heartland and in places like that. Um, so Smith Allen is a transgender reporter. She grew up as a Mormon missionary, but knew that something wasn't right for her. And so in college, she uh, came out as transgender and began living life as a woman. Um, and so she grew up in Utah and came out in Georgia and became curious about queer people who stay in flyover country instead of moving to the coast. Uh, and so the book is uh, framed around a road trip to some of those places. Um, So mostly kind of the liberal-ish enclaves and um, cities in states. So she visits Provo, Utah. She visits a few places in Texas, Indiana, and other states. Um, And she meets and talks with and interviews the LGBTQ people and allies and friends and supporters living in those places to try and kind of understand what it is like to be there. Um, And it is just... It's so great. She has a lot of, she spends a lot of time sharing voices from activists and people living there about why they choose to stay. So she left Utah, but the first place she visits is Utah to talk about people who are actually still there, still trying to to make life better for LGBTQ people, um, which I think is super interesting. Um, And it's also kind of interspersed with her memoir about being a queer person in the United States, particularly after the 2016 election. And so kind of what people are doing in the wake of that um, and, and trying to cope. And it's so, it's so great. And I appreciate that she doesn't ignore that there are really dangerous realities to being a queer person in some places, but she's trying to show what it is like for most people and kind of facilitate and how, um, queer people being in those places and being active and visible in those places helps facilitate conversations that slowly, really, really slowly bring about change. Um, and so it's a, it's just a fascinating book and I really appreciate the way it's structured and uh, kind of her interspersing of her experiences in with the voices and the space that she's giving all of these activists living in these cities and, and states. So that is Real Queer America, LGBT Stories from Red States by Samantha Allen. 
Yeah, and just to um, inject a, a quick moment of of sort of seriousness uh, into our, of course, otherwise very very fun podcast. The other reason I think it's extremely important to talk about these kinds of things and why uh, I'm glad we're doing another Pride segment this year is, um, you know, there's stuff like that happens like this week that lesbian couple on the bus was attacked in London. And um, I don't know Mm -hmm. if listeners saw, but, you know, there's photos posted of them like sitting on the bus bloodied because this group of teenagers attacked them after they saw them being publicly affectionate, Um, which when we talk about things like, you know, the uh, LGBT or LGBT stories from red states were like, oh, sure, like it's not, you know, but cities are fine. And it usually, yes, like usually it's you're you feel safer in cities, but um, it's still a, a thing that we need to keep like working on. And um, people unfortunately need to be sort of out and make it more sort of normal, like that's what's helping, but it's also um, scary to do that sometimes. So um, yeah, I just thought it was uh, important that we keep talking about these stories and uh, encouraging people to read about sort of other points of view, um, especially regarding LGBT stories. So um, with that, my pick is, so I went to our local bookstore and looked at, it's it's very queer friendly. And I was like, what are they like kind of, you know, supporting right now? And one of them is Native Country of the Heart, a memoir by Cherry Moraga. It came out in April 2019. So this is very new. But um, this is a memoir by Cherry Moraga, but also uh, it's essentially the story of her mother, whose name is Elvira. She left California to work as a cigarette girl in the 1920s um, uh, in Tijuana. So she had this relationship with this white man. And then um, her, Moraga sort of talks about her mother's journey from this impressionable young girl to this, you know, like um, bold matriarch. And then uh, later uh, her sufferings with Alzheimer's. So during that, while she sort of talks about her mother's story, she talks about her own discovery of her genderqueer body and lesbian identity and her passion for activism and the history of her pueblo. And so it says, as her mother's memory fails, Moraga is driven to unearth forgotten remnants of a U.S.-Mexican diaspora, its indigenous origins, and an American story of cultural loss. So you're really sort of hitting a lot of themes here. Um, I've only heard good things about this book. So again, that is Native Country of the Heart, a memoir by Cherry Moraga. Excellent. Good choice. And yeah, thanks for mentioning uh, the incident in London before, too. That You're, you're totally right. That. Part of what I think Real Queer America is doing is people who stay in those places are helping to normalize and and make it visible, which is part of what's important. And that's come up several times in the book. So yeah, excellent. So my second pick is a little bit older, but it's a book that I read several years ago and I really liked. So I'm excited to have a chance to talk about it again. Uh, that book is called Prairie Silence, a memoir by Melanie Hoffert. And it is a rural expat struggle to reconcile home, family, love, and faith with the silence of the prairie and its people, um, which sounds kind of lofty, I think, but it's actually really, really a good memoir. Um, so Melly Hoffert grew up on a farm near a very small town in North Dakota, uh, but she left her far- family farm and that community after high school, like a lot of rural teenagers do. Um to get more opportunities in the city, but also because it can be really hard to be gay in small towns like that. Um, so as a small town, her her small town and many small communities in rural places kind of declined, um, she decides as an adult to return and spend the harvest season on the family farm helping out and kind of being there and seeing what it is like. So it's about um, 
kind of this, it's a story about returning home, but then also the abandonment of small towns. Are they also connected to her kind of coming of age tale that she shares about falling in love and making peace with our faith and belonging um, in this place where, you know, neighbors are really close, but like in many Midwestern places, they don't share a lot of feelings with each other and some of those deep stories. So um, it kind of switches back and forth between her return home and what she's learning as an adult being there and also kind of stories of what she experienced growing up in this rural community. It's also a book about reconciling and connecting her sexuality with her Christian faith. Um, and I read this book back in, um, it came out in 2012. I read it in 2013. I mean, I read it at a time when I was really trying to understand those connections. Um, it, in Minnesota at the time, there was a push to pass a, an amendment to um, define marriage in our state constitution as between a man and a woman. And the uh, rural community that I was living in at the time, like people were very supportive of that idea. Um, and it didn't pass, but it mostly because of uh, the volume of votes that came from the Twin Cities. And so a lot of the rural communities in Minnesota supported that idea. Um, and so I was trying to really understand, like, how can people who are Christians also, like, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me, like, how those two things could work together. And so I was really trying to understand it better. So I read this memoir because just as part of that kind of exploration, and I thought it was really good and compelling. Um, it's also, I just, I love memoirs about rural places. I think they're really beautiful and underrepresented in some ways. And so it was, it was a good read in that respect. So it's really kind of a quiet, interesting coming of age story, but also I really liked it. So uh, that is Prairie Silence, a memoir by Melanie Hoffert. I'm going to go on a short tangent because we got some extra time this episode. And Please, yeah. um, so you were talking about like the reconciliation of like sort of identifying as queer, but then also being Christian. Is that right? Yeah, I mean that. And then what I was trying to understand was like people who are Christians could also like be so unwelcoming to people. Like it just like those two things don't go together to me that like Christianity is about love and acceptance and support and that we were having these like crazy conversations in the – not crazy conversations. We were having these like – back and forth letters to the editor in the newspaper of people being like, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong, therefore, blah, 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 which like I don't think is true and I couldn't understand. So it's just trying to figure out how all of those things were kind of working together. And does that make sense? No, absolutely. So I feel like um, being formerly very conservatively Christian, I can answer both sides of this coin. Yeah, that's – yeah, for sure. So one is basically that it's the love the – sinner hate the sin situation. So a lot uh, when I was sure, when yeah. I was in high school, it was very like, oh no, 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 we love gay people, but they are living in sin. And so we have to tell them that so that they can come out of that and have a real relationship with God. So it's not, you know, it's but then you therefore can't support gay marriage because you're like, well, that's just leaning into the sin. And so you're like, oh, no, we love the people, but we're just like light. It was like usually compared to alcoholism where it was like, you're not, it was really bad. <laughs> you're like, it was like, you're not, uh, you can't, you know, give an alcoholic a drink, you know, like we're not going to be supporting their alcoholism mm -hmm. because we love them. We're going to try to help them out of this. So um, it's very sneaky and not great. Um, I think that it's usually meant in like they're they really think they're doing the right thing. Um, but I mean, I did when I was 15. But um, yeah, it's obviously um, very damaging. So there's that. And then on the other side of things, when I started going to my very, very gay church, we did a Bible study um, looking at the verses that talk about homosexuality. And 
there's like a whole lot of stuff with that. But the the most sort of memorable thing my pastor said was he was like, he did another study at another church. And one of his parishioners was basically like, um, this is disturbing. There are no Bible verses that actually talk against slavery. Um, the only ones you can cite are supporting it. And he was like, I don't know how to reconcile that. And our pastor said, you have to, and this is the same with sort of like, I guess like queer identity, you have to look at the overarching messages of the Bible and you can't look at individual verses. And the overarching messages do not support slavery, right? They support freedom and love and mm-hmm. all this. So um, if you're looking at the individual verses, it's really easy to find stuff that supports your kind of like crappy narrative. But yeah, so I think it's I think it's kind of like a weird, I don't know, like just not being a literalist, which again is is <laughs> yeah. what I grew up as. So um that was a difficult sort of coming out of, but it's it's yeah. I think you end up with like a better message towards humanity and a better interpretation of it. So there we are. Hmm. Thanks for picking Prairie Silence, a memoir. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, Thanks for that context. That's really helpful. Oh, for sure. Um, so my last pick for that is uh, The Pink Triangle, The Nazi War Against Homosexuals by Richard Plant, which, you know, feels like kind of relevant. Um, so this, uh, I haven't been able to look at this a lot, but uh, I checked out reviews and they were good. Um, I was scanning it at the bookstore. So this is the first comprehensive book in English on the fate of um gay people in Nazi Germany. So the author is a German refugee. He looks at the climate and conditions that gave rise to this vicious campaign against Germany's uh, gays. This very much focuses on gay men um, as directed by Himmler and his SS. So this is persecution that resulted in tens of thousands of arrests and thousands of deaths. Um, He does briefly touch on lesbians, but he basically says that they they were occasionally persecuted in the camps, but it was much, much more focused on gay men. Um, so in this Nazi crusade, uh, gay prisoners were confined to death camps, were forced to wear pink triangles, which I think is the main thing people know about this. Um, and when they had these on, this, so they constituted the lowest rung in the camp hierarchy. Um, so he uses diaries, previously untranslated documents, and interviews with and letters from survivors. This was written in, I believe, the 1980s. Um, so there were, you know, many more people alive who had survived this. So this realizes how this anti-homosexual campaign was conducted and sort of like these really insane notions that fueled it. Um, Himmler was, of course, uh, had a lot of problems. Um, So focusing on him and like who were its victims and then really just focusing on this aspect of, I guess, like Nazism in the concentration camps that isn't as talked about and sort of because it's like, you know, this sub part of it. Like there's there's the overall um, horror of it. And then there's like this horror section, which um, I understand if people don't really usually want to delve into that. But I think especially at the rhetoric we've been hearing nowadays, um, this could be useful, unfortunately. Um, Again, that is The Pink Triangle, The Nazi War Against Homosexuals by Richard Plant. Interesting. So I'm so this one was written in the 1980s and now it's just being translated or is it a new book that's recently translated? No, it's not new. I think it was tra- it was a it was originally written in English, I believe, in the 1980s, but the other scholarship oh, okay. Yeah, the other scholarship that had been done about it was I'm assuming in German. So this was the first English book written about it. Oh, okay. Interesting. Very good pick. Cool. Um, And then I just have two other super quick ones as I was doing. So I do the 
nonfiction newsletter for Book Riot. And so I look at new releases every week. And there were two that came out in the week of June 4th that I thought also would fit this segment. But of course, I haven't read them yet because they're super new. Um, But I did just want to mention them because I think they sounded both really great. Um, And so the first one is We Have Always Been Here, a Queer Muslim Memoir by Samira Habib. Um, And this is a memoir about a queer Muslim woman um, talking about her experiences that way and how she feels kind of how to, how to find acknowledgement and uh, in a world that doesn't see you. Uh, and the second one is uh, Indecent Advances, A Hidden History of True Crime and Prejudice Before Stonewall by James Polchin. Uh, and this is a look at um, true crime narratives and coverage before Stonewall and how the portrayal, uh, the relationship between the media and popular culture and the portrayal of crimes against gay men. Um, And so it's about kind of the euphemistic and lurid ways that true crime covered violence against gay men uh, at that time, which I think sounds uh, super interesting too, also sad and upsetting, but you know, true crimey also, which I like. So yeah. Do you have anything else you want to add, Alice? Or Oh, I actually do because uh, I feel dumb not mentioning that this is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall um, this year. Yes, thank you. On June 28th. And then my girlfriend, I forgot, wanted me to mention that she was like, did you talk – are you going to talk about that book I got? And I was like, no, I have other books. But um, <laughs> she, she she was like, well, just tell – like say that I bought it. So um, Stonewall Riots Coming Out in the Streets by Gail E. Pittman. It's um, a young adult – very beautiful sort of fun cover um, book about the Stonewall riots and talking about the 50th anniversary. So that too. Oh, that sounds good. Good pick, Michelle. Cool. All right. So now we will uh, wrap up this episode as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading right now. Um, And so I'm actually in the middle of an audio book, which I am kind of, I like, but don't love. And I have questions and feelings about. Uh, and the book is Small Fry by Lisa Brennan Jobs, which is uh, the memoir of Steve Jobs' daughter, who he um, for a long time would not acknowledge as actually being his daughter. And so it's about, yeah, it's, it's her life story about growing up as Steve Jobs' daughter. And I, uh, w- I was reading this for my book club, and I've been listening to it on audiobook because that was the only way I was going to get to it in time. Um, and I just feel like very meh about it. <laughs> because uh, so my book club reads the New York Times top 10 books of the previous year and I cannot figure out why this book is on that list it's basically like from what I've I've gotten I'm almost done but it's just like a book about how weird Steve Jobs was as a parent and the kind of like neglect and emotional abuse he put her through because she was born before he was ready to be a parent um and so it's just like I I don't know that it's adding very much to like what we know about him and his legacy or even like what we know about him as a parent. And so like as I'm reading it, I just wish that she had done more like I have like in my notes reporting and air quotes. Like I wish that she had done more to like talk to her family, talk to her mother, talk to her siblings, talk to people around him to try and understand like I'll get a more nuanced look about his life, like who he was at home and how having as much power, money, privilege, and cultural influence as he did affected his parenting. Because I feel like the book is just sort of a, a like, this is what happened and this is the thing that happened and this is the thing that happened. And there's not a lot of just like exploration and understanding of it. And so I'm feeling like I I feel like it's an interesting, I, like a good idea for a book. And it's just sort of like the execution is leaving me a little bit lacking. So I would love to hear what other people think if other people are liking this one more than I am, because I'm just kind of meh about the whole thing. So that's Small Fry by Lisa Brennan Jobs. See, Kim, this is why you're a journalist. Because I wouldn't be like, <laughs> I wish that she had interviewed family members for this. But yeah, that's a... That's a great observation. Um, I haven't read it at all because I don't really care about Steve Jobs. But 
I know a lot yeah. of people do. So, and the cover's great, which I'm always for. Mm-hmm. Okay, I am actually reading a, a number of things. So, one is the Disappearing Spoon, the Young Readers Edition, because now I'm into this. Ah. Yeah. So, yes. I feel like okay. So sometimes, as we know, nonfiction gets a little in the weeds with its info, and you don't need all of it because you're a busy person going about your life. Um. So I really did enjoy reading Eiffel's Tower. Uh, I really hope that's the title. I'll, I'll, it'll be right in the show notes. Anyway, um, so the one for young readers was really good. I felt like, oh, I, this was like a pretty quick read. And I also got a lot of facts that uh, are about all I need on the Eiffel Tower. So The Dis- Disappearing Spoon, uh, the subtitle is And Other True Tales of Rivalry, Adventure, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements by Sam Keen. So this is essentially going through the periodic table and giving you some more like fun facts and info and stories. And I don't really like science, but I just as an overarching uh, subject of the universe. Um, but uh, I did very badly in it in school, but this is very interesting. And he's telling it in this very sort of thrilling way. Um, so I'm really enjoying it. Anyway, I recommend The Disappearing Spoon for young readers. I am also reading They All Love Jack which is a book about Jack the Ripper. Um, it's The subtitle is Busting the Ripper by Bruce Robinson. And I'm reading that on audiobook. It is 30 hours long, um, which I didn't realize when I started it. And I looked at it and I was like, how do I still have like 28 hours left? And I looked it up online and it's <laughs> over 800 pages. So um, I'm enjoying it. He seems to be going down like a, what is that fraternity? The Masons. He's going down like a Mason rabbit hole. And I think he's going to say that one of the Masons killed women in London, like was Jack the Ripper. And that feels a Hmm. little bit conspiracy theory-ish to me, but I'm only like two hours into this 30-hour book. So I'm willing to hear him out for a certain amount of time. Um, Anyway, so yeah, those those are my two main ones I'm focusing on now. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. And if you feel so inclined, please uh, go rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And so with that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Mm-hmm.